0: Welcome to KUOW's Speaker's Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, it may come as no surprise to you to hear that Bernie Sanders is not done. He was on the post-campaign trail last week with a stop in Seattle to promote his new book, Our Revolution, A Future to Believe In. Even after a bruising election season and outcome, Sanders says the majority of Americans agree with his vision of progress. He challenges us to think big about progressive change. Senator Bernie Sanders spoke at the University Temple United Methodist Church on November 30th. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Now, here's Bernie.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Seattle. Um Jane Sanders' his husband. Uh, let me let me begin um, by thanking uh, Seattle, thanking the state of Washington for giving us a very great victory in the democratic primary process. Thank you. And when we talk about making the political revolution, you have already made a major step forward by electing Pr- uh, Pramila Jayapal to the United States Congress. I think you're going to see Pramila as one of the leading progressives in Congress, and thank you very much for sending her there. Uh, what I want to do tonight is uh, talk a little bit about the book, talk a little bit about where we are today and maybe most importantly, where we have to go. So let me just go over uh, some things that I think most of you already know. Number one, uh, please do never, never forget uh, that Mr. Trump got 2 million votes less than Secretary Clinton on Election Day. And the importance of that is that you have got to understand in your hearts, and we will make Mr. Trump understand he does not have a mandate, period. (laughs) Second of all, and this is important and something that we have to think a whole lot about and we've got to understand, but the truth is that on virtually every major issue facing this country, the majority of the American people support the progressive position. So I don't want anybody here to think that you are a member of some fringe minority. Virtually every view that you hold is a majority view in this country. vast majority of the American people want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. And by the way, wherever I go around the country, I always mention Seattle as having gone first in raising the minimum wage. And the importance, the importance of that, and I speak as a former mayor of Burlington, Vermont, is that when you act locally, when you pass a $15 an hour minimum wage, suddenly California began looking at it and San Francisco, and New York State, and communities all over the country. Acting locally and progressively is certainly a part of what the political revolution is about. Thank you, Seattle. But it's not just the minimum wage. It is pay equity for women, overwhelmingly Overwhelmingly, the American people say that it is absurd that in the year 2016 women are making 79 cents on the dollar compared to men. The American people overwhelmingly understand that when our infrastructure, our roads, our bridges, our rail system, our levees, our dams, our water systems, our wastewater plants are collapsing, They understand that when we invest in our infrastructure, we improve the quality of our lives and we create millions of good-paying jobs. That is what the American people believe. The American people believe from childcare to graduate school, we need radical changes in the way we fund education in this country. Now, it is not a sexy issue. It's not an issue that gets talked about a whole lot. But the truth is that throughout this country, our child care system is dysfunctional. Right now, just think about it for a moment. Two points. Every psychologist who studies human behavior, human development, understands that zero through five are the most important years of human development, emotionally, And intellectually and yet what we have right now are childcare workers earning an average wage of less than ten dollars an hour not having the training that they need to provide the quality childcare that parents deserve meanwhile you got working moms single moms paying ten fifteen thousand dollars a year for childcare Our job as a nation is to understand that those little kids are the future of this country. We're going to invest in the best childcare that we can for them. And that is what the American people want also. And they also know that in a highly competitive global economy, we need the best educated workforce in the world. Truth is, 30, 40 years ago, we had more people going to college and graduating college than any other country on Earth. Today, that is no longer the case. Many, many countries now have a higher percentage of college graduates than we do. Our job is to make public colleges and universities tuition-free so that any kid And we have also got to deal, you know, what we are trying to do, what this book is about, is demanding that people think big, not small. Not accept the minimal choices that Washington or the media often gives us. If we want the best educated workforce in the world, if we want our people to be getting as much education as they need, millions of people should not be forced to leave college or graduate school deeply in debt. And that's not just me or you. That is what the American people believe. And I'll tell you what else the American people believe. They believe that billionaires like Donald Trump, they believe that large multinational corporations should start paying their fair share of taxes. some people who think that the solution to immigration problems we have today is to swoop up on a given night, I suppose, and throw millions of people out of this country. That is not going to happen, and that is not what the American people want. What they want is comprehensive immigration reform and a path toward citizenship. And I'll tell you something else that the American people, and even conservatives, understand this issue, and that is it makes no sense at all that in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, which is what we are today, we have more people in jail than any other country on earth. China is four times our size. Think about it. Four times our size, communist authoritarian country does not tolerate dissent terribly well, we've got far more people in jail per capita per capita, and totally than China does. And what the American people understand is that when we are spending $80 billion a year to lock up people at the local, state, and federal level, it pays a hell of a lot, makes a hell of a lot more sense to be investing in jobs and education rather than jails or incarceration. In my small state of Vermont, and in states throughout this country, we spend more money on locking people up than we do on higher education. That is nuts. What the American people also understand is that we have got to radically reform a broken campaign finance system. One of the issues that I worry about, and I worry about a lot with Mr. Trump going to the White House, but one of the areas that I worry about the most is the threat to basic democratic values in this country. And this is what I worry about. I worry about two things that the Republicans are trying to do. Number one, Republicans love Citizens United, which in my view is the worst Supreme Court decision in the modern history of this country. Now what Citizens United does, and how it undermines democracy, as many of you know, is what it says to billionaires like the Koch brothers or large corporations. It says, you can spend as much money as you want on an election, hundreds of millions of dollars, but it has to be an independent expenditure. And what that means is when you turn on your TV and an election, during an election, what you'll see is phony groups, Citizens for This, Citizens for That, running negative ads. Those are independent expenditures often funded by billionaires or large corporations. For the Republican leadership in Congress, if you can believe it, Citizens United does not go far enough. What they want to do is end all campaign finance limitations and allow billionaires to directly fund candidates. What that means in English is they will select somebody to run for the Senate from the state of Washington and say, here is a check for $100 million. There is your campaign manager, there is your speechwriter, there is your media consultant. You now work for me. You are on my payroll. That is what the Republican leadership wants. Our job is exactly the opposite. Our job is to overturn this disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision, move to a one-person, one-vote democracy, not have billionaires buying elections. But there is another issue, equally important, and of equal concern. You may have noticed the other day that Trump sent out a totally absurd tweet. Now we're, we're getting used to being having government by tweet, 140 characters or less. And this particular tweet was really delusional. I mean, it is really unbelievable that we have a guy who's going to be president sending this out. He says. He says he would have won the popular vote if millions of people had not voted illegally. Nobody who studies the issue believes that that statement makes any sense at all. It is totally nuts. All right? Voter fraud is a very serious problem if somebody commits it. The good news is, is that in America we have very little voter fraud. Our Republican friends search high and low all over this country to find cases of voter fraud, and very rarely do they find any. But what Trump's tweet was really about, if you go beyond beneath the surface, what he was saying to Republican leaders, become aggressive in terms of voter suppression. Make it harder for people to vote, make it harder for immigrants to vote, make it harder for people of color to vote, young people, old people. People who might vote against us put obstacles in their way, put impediments in their way so they cannot participate in the political process. What an insult that is to the millions of men and women who put their lives on the line and sometimes died for what makes us a great country, and that is our democracy. Our job, our job, and states around the country are moving forward in this area, is to figure out ways that we can involve more people in the political process, not fewer people. At the end of the day, what some, and I don't want to suggest all Republicans, because that would not be accurate, but what some want is democracy meaning that billionaires buy elections and poor people and working people are kept from voting. And that is something we are going to fight tooth and nail. That is not our definition of democracy. Now, Trump said many, many absurd things during his campaign. But at the heart of that entire campaign, the cornerstone of his campaign was bigotry. It was an attempt to divide the American people up, to have one group of people hate another group of people. All of you know that before Mr. Trump became uh, a candidate for president, he was the leader of the so-called Bertha movement. And the Bertha movement was a racist effort to undermine the legitimacy of the first African-American president in our history. That's what it was. In the beginning of his campaign, one of the very first things he did was to attack Mexicans and call them criminals and racists. The things that he said about women, I cannot repeat from this podium because they would embarrass you and they would embarrass me. But the ugly, ugly statements that he made about women is beyond belief. Right now, his view is, or maybe he's modifying it, is that people of one of the largest religions in the world, Muslims, should not be able to visit our country or come to our country. Our job in understanding the long and painful history we as a nation have had in combating discrimination is that we will not compromise on the issue of bigotry. No compromise there. All of you know, you know, there are certain, some rock-solid values that we just cannot compromise. All of you are aware that before this country even became a country, when the first settlers came here, and the lies and the cheating and the refusal to honor treaties with Native Americans— A practice which is going on today at Standing Rock. I know that. But not only the horrific treatment of Native Americans. We all know about the abomination of slavery and Jim Crow activities and the fight to get the vote for people regardless of their color. We all know that a 100 years ago tonight, Women were not running for president of the United States. They did not have the right to vote. They did not have the right to get the education they wanted, do the work they wanted. We all know the suffering and the pain and the humiliation that our brothers and sisters in the LGBT community went through year after year. We know the kinds of blatant discrimination that took place against the Irish the Italians, the Jews, Catholics. That is the history of this country. And for 200 years, incredibly brave and decent people struggled against that bigotry. And we have made good progress in that struggle. We have a long way to go, but we should be proud of the progress we have made. If we were here 20 years ago and somebody jumped up and said, you know, Bernie, I think... By the year 2008, we'll elect an African-American as president of the United States. Or by the year 2015, gay marriage will be legal in 50 states in this country. People would have thought that that was nuts. Could not happen. But it happened because of the struggles of millions and millions of people. And what we say to Mr. Trump, we have traveled too far in the fight against discrimination. We are not going backwards. And there is another area, another area where we cannot compromise. Mr. Trump ran his entire campaign by proclaiming that climate change is a hoax uh, emanating from China and I will never understand why he thought it was China one would have thought he thought it was Mexico maybe or one of the Muslim countries but it was China. Now What Mr. Trump has got to understand is that the scientific community is virtually united in telling us that climate change is not a hoax. It it is the most serious environmental crisis facing not just the United States, obviously, but the entire world. And what the scientists are telling us in really plain, straightforward language is if we do not get our act together as a planet, and transform our energy systems away from fossil fuel into energy efficiency and sustainable energy, the planet that we will be leaving, our kids, our grandchildren, and future generations will become less and less healthy, less and less habitable. So what our message is, and it has to be delivered by millions of people in all kinds of ways, is that we will stand up to the fossil fuel industry, who believe that their short-term profits are more important than the future of our planets. We will stand up to them and anybody else, because this is not just a fight for us, far more significantly, It is a fight for our kids, our grandchildren, and future generations. We are custodians of this planet, and we have a moral responsibility to protect this planet. Now, there are a lot of people who say... How in God's name did Donald Trump win? I don't know anybody who voted for Donald Trump. And then there are other people who are saying, how did Hillary Clinton get two million more votes than Trump? I don't know anybody who voted for Hillary Clinton. And what that is about in many ways, and it's an area that we have got to work on, is that we live in a siloized, I don't know if that's the kosher word here, but we live in our own worlds. People here live in a world, and they live in a world. And everyone talks to each other, and they all agree on everything. But I want to tell you, in my view, why I believe that Trump won. Number one, I do not accept what some people say. Everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist or a sexist or a homophobe. I don't believe that. Some of them are, absolutely. But I don't believe that that is the majority of those people. I think what Trump did in a brilliant way even though it was totally hypocritical and dishonest, is what he did is he spoke to the pain and anxiety that millions of people today are feeling. And when he got up there and he said, I, Donald Trump, I am prepared to take on the establishment, the political establishment, the economic establishment, the media establishment, A lot of people said, well, I don't like him on this, and I don't believe him on that, and his views on women are terrible. But you know what? We do need to shake the system up. We do need to take on the establishment. And many of those people holding their noses with reluctance ended up voting for him. And I'll tell you what he also spoke to and what the media does an abysmal job in reporting. And by the way, in this book, if you get bored halfway through, skip to the last chapter Now, it's actually a good book, but just in case, if tax policy is not your thing, go to the last chapter, which is called Corporate Media, A Threat to Our Democracy. And essentially, what that that chapter talks about is that there are enormous problems facing our country. There are tens of millions of people tonight living in pain, living in anxiety. They don't know how they're going to pay the electric bill. They don't know how they're going to put gas in their car to get to work, and if they can't get to work, they're going to get fired, and if they get fired, they don't know what's going to happen to their kids. you got moms out there, who are making $30,000, $40,000 a year and paying $10,000, $15,000 a year in child care. They don't know how they are going to do that. We have 28 million people in this country who have no health insurance. Do you know what it's like not to have any health insurance? Do you know what it's like to have a high deductible and a high copayment so that when you get sick, you cannot go to the doctor? Do you know that there are thousands of people who die every single year in this, the richest country in the history of the world? They die because they don't go to the doctor when they should. And I've talked to doctors in my state, all over this country, and they tell me about people who come in who are incredibly sick. And they say, why didn't you come in here a year ago when your symptoms first developed? And the person sheepishly says, well, I don't have any insurance. My deductible is too high, I can't afford it. Some of those people do not make it when they should have been able to be treated effectively. Some end up in the hospital with great suffering and great expense. You got 28 million uninsured, more than that underinsured. Right now in America, you can go to the doctor when you're sick, doctor writes out a prescription. One out of five Americans today cannot afford to fill that prescription because the pharmaceutical industry is ripping us off and charging us the highest prices in the world. So how do you feel about the political establishment? How do you feel about the political parties? You go to the doctor when you're sick, you can't even afford to fill a prescription. How do you feel about the system when you're out there making 12, 13 bucks an hour? And you can do the arithmetic as well as I can. Millions of people out there working for substandard wages, working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, not making enough money to take care of themselves, let alone their kids. How do you feel? And this is what Trump was doing. He was talking to these people. Today in America, there are millions of older workers, people who are 55 or 60, people who are approaching retirement. Half of the older workers in this country have zero dollars in savings. You're 60 years of age, you're running out of steam, you're getting sicker. you're tired, you're going to be retired in five years, you got nothing in the bank. And you know what, people are scared. They are scared of what happens to them after they stop working. And many of those people were once working at decent jobs in factories, and then one day, their employer came up and said, oh, by the way, thank you for your 20 years of service, but we're shutting you down, and we're moving to Mexico, and we're moving to China. And those people, if they had a union, if they were making decent wages, suddenly found themselves out on the street, earning 50, 60% of what they made when they had a decent job. During the course of the campaign, Jane and I went to a county in southern West Virginia. It was called McDowell County. It is a former coal mining area. And today, something ahistorical, unprecedented is happening in McDowell County in many other areas of West Virginia, Kentucky, and other parts of this country. Throughout the modern history of this country, and in fact the world, what we have seen is that people's life expectancy goes up. Everything being equal, I live longer than my parents did, my parents live longer than their parents, and so forth and so on. That's going on all over the world as a result of Uh, medical, uh, improved uh, medicine, uh, drugs, and so forth. Yet, for millions today of white working class people, their life expectancy is now lower than their parents. What is going on in communities all across this country is the despair, the hopelessness is so high that people are turning To opiates, they're turning to heroin, they're turning to alcohol, they are turning to suicide in very large numbers, so that we have now many millions of people whose life expectancy is lower than their parents. This is the despair that exists in certain parts of our country, but it's not just the white working class. You go to large urban cities, and you go to African-American communities, and you see youth unemployment in those communities of 20 30 40%. Latino communities, the same. And when kids have no jobs, and they have no education, we should not be surprised that we have more people in jail than any other country on Earth. That is what is going on in America. You don't see it on CBS, and you're not going to see it on CNN. But Trump saw it, and he was right. Our job is to rebuild a Democratic Party, to make certain that it is the Democratic Party that honestly brings those people and their concerns into the political process because Donald Trump is not. You can see it every day. Every day, the hypocrisy of his campaign. Just the other day, he said, in one of his tweets or something, he said, I am the only Republican candidate who will not cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Well, he just appointed a congressman, Mr. Price, whose life's goal is to end public health care. All right? Mr. Trump told the American people he was going to take on Wall Street, Wall Street's not going to rip off the American people. And yet the guy we think he is going to appoint uh, as Secretary of Treasury comes from Goldman Sachs once again. All right. He is not going to represent working people. Our job is. Now, what we need to do and what I am working on very hard right now, I've been made a, for better or worse, part of the Democratic leadership in the Senate. And the job that I have been given is to be Chair of the Outreach Effort. So that means I need your help. And that means what we have got to do at this particular moment, this is a very unique and unusual moment in American history, and we have got to take where we are and turn it around. And I think the way we turn it around is to understand that now more than any time in our lifetimes, it is absolutely imperative that we become involved in every sense of the word, in every way that we can in the political process. All right? Politics, politics is not just about voting every two years or every four years. That's obviously very important. But politics really is 365 days a year. How does the state of Washington help lead the country in terms of climate change? What kind of actions, how do we go forward to join the rest of the industrialized world in guaranteeing health care to all people as a right? How do we effectively take on the pharmaceutical industry and demand that they lower their outrageously high prices? How do we make sure that our children and our seniors and our disabled veterans get the kind of support that they need to live in dignity? And each and every one of you has got to think about how we go forward. It's not going to be Washington, it's not even going to be just the progressives in Washington who can do it. We can't do it without your support. And with your support, we can do it. At the end of the day, and I think it's important for all of us to reflect upon this, this country has gone through, over its history, just some enormous, enormous crises. And people by the millions have struggled to create more justice, more equality, more dignity. Think about what people had to go through in the past. Think about the workers who had to go out on strike, and Seattle had one of the great strikes in the history of the labor movement, as a matter of fact. Think about what workers had to do to form unions so they can engage in collective bargaining. What they had to do to make sure that kids were not working in factories. Think about the struggle of the civil rights movement. During the course of the campaign, Jane and I were in Birmingham, Alabama, and I learned something that I did not know. I remembered, and I think most of you, the terrible bombing that took place in Birmingham that killed four beautiful children. What most people didn't, don't know, I did not know, is during that month in Birmingham, there were 13 bombings in one month in order to intimidate the African American community who were fighting for voting rights. They stood tall, they continued the struggle, and they won. So our job is not to throw up our hands in despair Our job is not to say we're tired or we're angry. Our job is to use our brains to think about the most effective way that we can fight back. And when we do that, we're going to win this thing. Let me say... a few words about the book, given the fact that we're here for the book. I thought I would mention the book. Uh, the book is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part basically says, how, how did we start this campaign? Well, we started the campaign with a handful of people. We had no money, no political organization. Uh, we had no name recognition or very little. And we were taking on the entire Democratic establishment, virtually every member of the Senate, every member of the House, every governor in America, every mayor in America. Other than that, we had a lot of support from the establishment. And that's where we started, with nothing. But it turned out that the American people were, in fact, sick and tired of establishment politics and establishment economics. And it turned out that the American people wanted real change. That was true then. It is true now. And what we ended up with is taking on the political establishment, taking on the Clinton organization, which was the most powerful political organization in the country, having elected Bill Clinton twice and almost electing Hillary in 2008. We took them on. But we ended up, after all of that and more, with winning 22 states, including the great state of washington yeah. winning 46% of the pledge delegates winning almost none of the super delegates and raising just a large amount of money from average contributions of $27, okay? And most importantly, most importantly, is in every state in the country, we won the votes of young people, and I mean not just 20 years of age or younger, but 40 or younger. We won the overwhelming support of white young people, Black young people, Latino young people, Native American young people, Asian American young people. And what that is about, and I want everybody here to fully appreciate it and be proud of that. That is the future of America, and that future is on our side. Now what I do in the second part of the book is not, I think, done enough in this country, and that is lay out the issues, and I'll briefly go over them, and then provide concrete solutions. And the first chapter that I have, which is, in fact, the issue that concerns me the most, is how do we defeat oligarchy? Now, you can't defeat oligarchy unless you recognize oligarchy. And most certainly this is not a word that will appear on television. And that's another issue. And that's a serious problem. But the truth is that today, both economically and politically, we are moving toward a society in which a small number of billionaires have incredible control over our economy and increasingly over our political life. You know, when we were kids, we used to read textbooks about small countries around the world, controlled by a few families. I don't want to be the first to break the bad news to you. Take a look at what's going on in this country today. Take a look at what goes on on Wall Street, where you have a half a dozen major financial institutions who have assets equivalent to 58% of the GDP of the United States of America, about $10 trillion. They write about two-thirds of the credit cards, one-third of the mortgages. Unbelievable power. And yet, the business model of Wall Street is fraud. And despite the fact that we don't have a particularly strong enforcement mechanism in Washington, every single one of these major financial institutions, Goldman Sachs and all the rest, have paid billions of dollars in fines for illegal behavior. That is the most powerful economic institution in America, running on fraud. And yet, when we talk about a broken criminal justice system, we talk about kids getting criminal records for smoking marijuana, but not one executive on Wall Street has been prosecuted. And the second chapter deals again with something that needs a lot of discussion. Democrats, appropriately so, take pride. They say, look, we're better off today than we were eight years ago just before Obama came into office. We've made progress. And the evidence is overwhelming that that is true. Unemployment, much less. wages higher. And we should be proud of that. But here is another reality, and Trump picked up on this. For 40 years, for 40 years, the middle class of this country has been in decline. In the United States today, median household income is $1,400 less than it was in 1999. The real median income of full-time male workers is $2,100 less than it was 43 years ago. Over the last 15 years, we have lost some 60,000 factories in this country and millions of decent paying jobs. Over the last decade, 81% of American households saw flat or falling incomes. That is what Trump was talking about. That is why people are angry. And our question that we have got to ask ourselves is how does it happen that the middle class continues to shrink, people work longer hours, in many cases for lower wages while 52% of all new income today goes to the top 1% how does it happen that in the last 16 years we have seen a tenfold increase in the number of billionaires in america 10 increase from 51 to 540 billionaires a few of them here in seattle and yet We have seen a continuation of America having the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country. Those are issues we have got to deal with. And what we're talking about here in the book is how do you create an economy which works for all of us and not just the 1%. Next chapter deals with health care, and it answers a very simple question. Again, a question, it does not appear on CBS or NBC. It doesn't happen. How does it happen that we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right? You are two hours away from the Canadian border. On the other side of the country, I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border for 30 years or so. They have managed through a single payer healthcare system to guarantee healthcare to all of their people. They spend significantly less per capita. So this chapter basically discusses why we remain the only major country that doesn't guarantee health care to all, what it would mean, what a radical, revolutionary transformation of our society if everybody had health care as a right. You know what amount of anxiety that would be lifted from the shoulders of millions of people when they get sick they could actually go to the doctor? That you don't have to stay in a job that you hate just because you get good health care? You go out and start your own business and not worry whether your family is covered. You can afford the prescription drugs that your doctor prescribes. This will radically transform America. This chapter talks about how we move toward a Medicare for All single-payer program. There is a chapter, and I discussed this already, about climate change. And Why it is that we have not moved aggressively, as aggressively as we should, in transforming our energy system. It talks about the power of the fossil fuel industry, about the lies that they spew, the phony organizations that they establish in order to try to confuse people about the reality of climate change. This book talks about real criminal justice reform and the need to end this international embarrassment of having more people in jail than any other country, having very high rates of recidivism. When uh, we were in Iowa, we held held a, um, a forum on criminal justice. I'll never forget this. And we had a couple of guys up there who had served time. And one guy said, yeah, I remember when I got out, they came to me, He was in jail in Iowa, and they came to me the day before I was to be released, and they said, you're getting out tomorrow. Here is a check for $75, and good luck to you. He ended up back in jail. We have a very high rate of recidivism because we put people out on the streets without the education, without the job training, without the housing that they need in order to escape from the environment that got them in jail in the first place. So, and the book talks about, again, an issue that is not widely talked about. And that is not only the fact that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth. It's that so many of our seniors and disabled veterans and people with disabilities are really, really struggling just to survive. All right. It is right. And right now, I know in Seattle and in Burlington, Vermont, there are people trying to get by, older people trying to get by on $10,000, $13,000 a year Social Security. And you can do the arithmetic as well as I can. The truth is you can't get by. And those people are cutting their prescription drugs in half. They're not adequately heating their homes. They're not eating the way they should. Many of them become depressed. We as a nation have got to understand that a great nation is not judged by the number of billionaires that it has. We are judged by how we treat the most vulnerable people in our country. So that's what's... There's a lot of good information in the book, and some of it just talks about you know, going around the country and meeting people, you know, and things that you know one never forgets. Uh, we were in Phoenix, Arizona, and meeting with young Latino kids and uh, teenagers, maybe a little bit older, and tears were streaming down the eyes, their eyes, as, as they talked about their fear, their very palpable fear of going home from school one day and finding their mom or their dad deported Um, so the book I think addresses many of the major problems that our country faces but it also talks about how we can solve them and where we can go as a nation and let me just conclude by saying what I said before we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world if we were a poor nation and we talked about providing good quality health care to all it would be unrealistic How do you get the doctors? How do you get the nurses? How do you get the medicine? We're not. We're a rich country. If we were a poor country, it would be very idealistic to talk about making public colleges and universities tuition-free and allowing anybody who has the ability to get a higher education. But we're not a poor country. We are the richest country in the history of the world. And what it comes down to, and where I need your help, where this country needs all of your help, is we have got to understand that we can accomplish extraordinary things in terms of health care education infrastructure criminal justice etc if we have the courage to take on the greed of the billionaire class now i know that makes some people uncomfortable i know it makes some people uncomfortable you know but i think we have to think about it these guys up there you know and i you know they're around washington all of the time I have seen billionaires, heads of large corporations, and they come into Washington, D.C., and they get golden parachutes of millions of dollars, retirement benefits, you know, golden, you know, living in luxury for the rest of their lives, and they come to Washington and they say, cut Social Security, cut Medicare. You know, that's what I see. That's what I hear. So what we have got to do is to understand why things are happening the way they are. It's not just good enough to say, well, we're concerned about the homeless. Yeah, of course we are. We're concerned about people in jail. Of course we are. We have got to figure out why things are happening. And a lot of that has to do with the greed of a billionaire class, of CEOs today, of large corporations who make 300 times more than their workers, who could care less about shutting down a plant in the state of Washington or the state of Vermont and moving to China, moving to Mexico, if they can make $5 more in profit. They could care less. And that's the reality that we have to deal with. They are very powerfully politi- powerful politically. They are powerfully powerful economically. But we have something that they don't have. And that is there may be 500 billionaires in this country, but there are 320 million ordinary citizens. So, uh, with that, uh, let me open it up for questions. I think somebody's going to come up here, and here she comes. Okay. All right, fire away.
2: How can Bernie supporters reconcile differences with Trump supporters to benefit both?
1: Let me hear the. I heard the. Uh, read that question again, please. Okay.
2: How can Bernie supporters reconcile differences with Trump supporters to benefit others? Good. To benefit both, sorry. To benefit both.
1: Go to, if you have friends who voted for Mr. Trump, ask them whether they think it is a good idea to cut Social Security and Medicare and give tax breaks to billionaires majority will tell you what you think and that that is an absurd idea. Ask Trump supporters whether they would like to be able to send their kids to college without their kids being fifty or or $100,000 in debt. And they will tell you, yes, they would like to be able to send their kids to college. Ask Trump supporters whether they'd like to live in affordable housing ask Trump supporters whether or not they would like to be having health care that they can afford. On many, many issues, you're gonna see Trump supporters holding views not radically dissimilar than we are, we hold. But you're also going to see, and we're doing this every day, go to my website and you'll see it. We are going to expose the hypocrisy of Trump because I, I may be wrong on this, maybe I'm wrong, He's a complicated guy, but I happen to believe—I happen to believe—that he doesn't really mean anything that he has said, and I think Trump supporters are going to see that soon enough. And I gave you an example: a guy who told people, there are elderly people who voted for Trump after he said, "I'm not going to cut your Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid." Just appointed the other day, a guy who wants to do just that. Now, that does not necessarily mean that they're going to cut Social Security. We will wait and see but it very well and likely will be they will make that effort, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I I think that is a way uh, to reach out to Trump supporters. Okay.
2: How can we build safer communities for minorities?
1: Well, that is a, and I would add to minorities, I would add immigrants as well. Um, One of the immediate concerns, and we'll see again, uh, Trump... You know, I hate to say this, because I am not the most part... It's hard for you to believe, but it's true. I'm not the most partisan guy in the world. I've never run negative ads. I don't like attacking, you know, people because they disagree with me. It's not my style. (laughs) But Trump puts you in a very difficult position, as he does the media who covers him, because he lies all of the time. And it's not just me. It's not, you know, he is, you know... Just the statement that he made the other day: millions of people voted illegally. It is a totally ridiculous statement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I worry, and we are—we have to be organized to deal with this. Uh, if it is his goal to destroy uh, whole lots of families uh, by deporting people who have been in this country, who have worked in this country, who are working today, who are raising their kids, we have to defend those people, and we can figure out how we do it. But good communities can stand by those people, and we can and will defend them. And if we do that, he will not be able to get away with what he is proposing. And in terms of minorities, it is, look, when we have 20 30 40% youth unemployment, that is unacceptable. When such a high percentage, something like one out of four, if we do not change it, and I hesitate to say this because I want to change it, but one out of four African-American males born today will end up in jail unless we change the nature of our economy, our educational system, and our criminal justice system. So there's a lot that has to be done. One of the areas I think we've got to work on, and there's a lot of work being done on it already, is the so-called war on drugs. A lot of, you know, we've got two problems. This opiate thing, heroin thing is a terrible, terrible problem. We've got to figure out how we deal with that. But on the other hand, we have to understand that a lot of lives have been damaged. People get criminal records for smoking marijuana. When you got a criminal record, you know, it's hard to go out and get a job. And when you look at it from a racial perspective, uh, blacks and whites, it turns out, according to studies, smoke marijuana at about equal levels. Blacks are four times more likely to get arrested than whites. So, you know, those are issues that we just are going to have to deal with.
2: How do we remain positive? Good question.
1: I think we remain positive by looking at the moment we're in from an historical perspective, and not just today. And you look at the incredible crises and tragedies and pain that this country and every country have gone through throughout our history. And I mentioned before, you know, just 50, 60 years ago, you're an African-American mother in the state of Mississippi trying to explain to your daughter why she can't go to the school here and she has to go to a terrible school there because it's a segregated school, why she can't drink at a water fountain. Think about that pain and what folks in that position had to go through. Think about the Irish who came here and saw signs no Irish wanted, no jobs for you. It's a book written in my own state, Burlington, Vermont. guy wrote a Ph.D. thesis in the 1920s, I believe, that it was a big deal in the city of Burlington, Vermont. Big deal when a Catholic got a job in a bank, or was a clerk in a bank. Broke a barrier, if you can believe it. So my point is, yeah, we should be nervous about where we are today. Think about from another perspective. A couple of years ago, I was at an event in northern Vermont we were honoring World War II veterans, and a whole lot of folks were there, and the woman who was organizing the event showed us a video of December 8th, 1941. Anyone remember what that day was? Yeah. That was the day after Pearl Harbor, and that was the day that Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared war against Japan, and then a little while later declared war against Germany. On that day, the United States was forced to be in a position of fighting a war in Europe, fighting a war in Asia, and on that day in late December, we were totally unprepared to do that. Totally unprepared to fight against Germany, to fight against Japan. Yet two and a half years later, because the country came together and developed a strong and effective military, we were producing the tanks, the guns, the planes that we needed, two and a half years later, for all intents and purposes, the war was won. So what's the point? Yeah, things are bad, things have been worse in the past. We have got to have the intelligence now not to live in despair or in fear, but to figure out how we're going to stand up, fight back in effective ways.
2: Can you run again? Will you?
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Right now. Right now. Right now. All right. See, these are the kinds of questions that the media asks. All right. <laughs> Our job is not to worry about who's running in four years or in 10 years. Our job is to deal with today. Our job is to deal with Standing Rock today to make sure that we protect our Native American brothers and sisters. Our job is to reach out to people all over this country who are struggling economically, Our job is to understand there are a lot of immigrants in this country today who are very, very frightened, Muslim people who are very, very frightened. we got a lot of work to do today. Don't worry about 2020, it'll come.
2: Do you think the Democratic Party establishment has learned any lessons this election year?
1: Well, All I can say, all I can say is that some of us are working very, very hard as we speak. And let me give you some nuts and bolts about that. There's a guy who's a congressman from Minnesota. His name is Keith Ellison. And what Keith believes... And what I believe, and I think a majority of Americans believe, is that we need a major, major transformation of the Democratic Party. And you guys have got to be part of that process. Uh, We need to open up the doors of the Democratic Party To working people, to young people, to progressives. We gotta welcome people into the party. We have got to be the party that stands with working families that has the guts. Not easy. This is where the Democratic Party has lost ground. The Democratic Party today, as I I think I mentioned earlier. You know, it's not just that we don't control the White House, we don't control the Senate, we don't control the US House of Representatives, we don't control two thirds of the governance seats in, in this country. And what the reason for that is a lot of people don't believe, with good reason, that the Democratic Party is today what it once was. If you go back to the 1940s, 1930s, and you would ask somebody on the street, which political party is the party of the working class of America, without hesitation, vast majority of people would say it's the Democratic Party. Very few people think that that is the case today. And we have got to make that the case. Too many people are struggling economically. Too many people on top are acting in an incredibly greedy, often illegal way. And we have got to have the guts to take them on. And when we do that, you're gonna see the Democratic Party do very well.
2: With our current media, and their unwillingness to talk about the real issues, is there anything we can do to effectively help change the state of our news?
1: Yeah, there are, and and let's talk about that. I mean, that's what my whole chapter is about, the last chapter. But, you know, it points out a few things. Let's get some facts there. Um, Right now, there are a half a dozen major media conglomerates, Comcast being the largest... News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's organization, being very powerful, uh, Viacom, um, Time Warner, a couple of others, who control about 90% of the information that the American people see, hear, and read. By definition, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. Corporate media, their goal is not, by definition, to educate the American people their goal is to make as much money as they can and I think you check it out you'll see the heads of CNN and and, uh, CBS I believe literally saying publicly Donald Trump has been fantastic for our bottom line the crazier the things that he says more people watch it we get more advertising we make more money all right check it out in terms of the kind of coverage that our campaign got compared to Donald Trump for the first for the year first 11 months of 2015, we were covered by ABC Evening News for 20 seconds. 20 seconds. And CBS and NBC were better, not a whole lot better. And there's a reason for that. Corporate media does not want to be challenged by people who are taking on the corporate establishment. That's not hard to understand. So, I think this is a great assignment. I mean, in a sense, a great thing that I think we can do. I think millions of people across the political spectrum are tired of seeing all this stuff about the candidates and so little about the lives of ordinary people. People want to see their pain reflected on television and they want to see serious discussion about how those issues are going to be addressed. Give you an example. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was a study that came out that said that the Sunday news shows, Meet the Press and, and the others, virtually gave no coverage at all to climate change. No scientists were on their show. We brought in, some uh, some senators and myself, we brought in some of the guys. A guy from CBS came in, and in fact, it changed just a little bit. But by and large, if you look at major, you tell me, all right, how much coverage there is on climate change, making the case that the debate is over. Climate change is real. What is the damage that it is doing? How do we protect the future of the planet? You don't see a whole lot of programming on that. You don't see a whole lot of programming about why the middle class in this country is disappearing. You see, in the book, and I discovered this after the campaign, and I say this not in a bragging kind of way. Somebody did a study. And they said, uh, I think it was the Sunday shows. They said, it turns out that poverty was discussed almost never, and two-thirds of the discussion of poverty on the Sunday shows was from Bernie Sanders. All right? So that doesn't speak, that means, doesn't speak to me, it means how can you ignore 43 million people living in poverty? How can you ignore? You seen any programs lately on youth unemployment in minority neighborhoods? You don't see that. Do you see any programs or many programs comparing the American healthcare system to other healthcare systems around the world? Any programs talking about why Canada is able to have a strong paid family and medical leave? The UK does it, Germany does it, we are the only major country on earth that does not do that. Do you see those types of discussion? You don't. What we can demand, look, they want you to buy their products. The function of television is not to present you information. It is to get you to buy. It's what takes place between the programming, the advertising. They want you to buy their products. You have power. You have power over the networks. If you tell them you're not gonna buy the damn products, they're not gonna watch the station unless they start reporting the news. So don't get me off on that one. That one I can go on for a long one. But At the end of the day, at the end of the day, what democracy must include is a well educated, well informed citizenry. And we can disagree, but we need good information. And certainly, corporate media is not doing that. There was a study also, another study that came out, that said 90% of campaign coverage had nothing to do with the issues of importance to the American people. What they cover is gossip, what they cover is polls, what they cover is campaign fundraising, what they cover is stupid things that somebody says, but they do not cover the issues facing the middle class. You can put pressure on them in whatever ways. You, know, you can think of these things as well as I can. But if you tell them, you tell the CNNs and the NBCs and the ABCs that you want real coverage on the real problems facing America, you can have some impact on that.
2: Okay. I have my own follow-up question to that. What do you think of the New York Times? Pardon me? What do you think of the New York Times?
1: Well, let's see. Um, The coverage, somebody wrote a, you know, it's embarrassing for me to have to talk about it. You should, you know, study these things yourself. But, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, from day one, never took our campaign seriously. Uh, when uh, we announced, I think we made page 19 of the New York Times. If you go through, just Google it, go through the coverage. It was mostly negative coverage, not serious, all of the problems of our campaign. Uh, you know, I don't want to make that as a blanket statement. There were some very good articles as well. Uh, but by and large, if you look, and, and the Washington Post was running, I think. In, in the heat of the moment, we're running about four, five, six articles a day on their website attacking us in every, every possible way. So, you know, the, we made the establishment very uncomfortable. The last thing in the world that they wanted to do is to see a president who is going to mobilize millions of people to take on the establishment. That is not what the New York Times wants. That's not what the Washington Post wants. And by the way, I mean, talking about establishment politics, this is... You know, in our campaign, I don't want to go through the whole thing, It's, it's kind of in the book here, it's not having to take on the whole Democratic Party establishment or the media establishment. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of major newspapers throughout this country. Every state has major newspapers. We won the endorsement of one major newspaper in the United States of America, the Seattle Times. Thank you. But it is, it is kind of funny, when you think about it, that when you win 46% of the popular vote, that you end up getting one newspaper endorsement out of hundreds. That's what, that is what the establishment is about. That's what establishment television, establishment newspapers, corporate America. Taking on the establishment ain't easy, but I think the, What we learned and what makes me very optimistic from our campaign, starting knowing very little about the right things to do, we ended up showing that there is massive discontent. People are not happy with the way the establishment is running this country.
2: Okay, everybody, go out and subscribe now to the Seattle Times. We want to keep it around. Um, What is the advantage of working within the DNC rather than setting up a new progressive subgroup?
1: Well, we're thinking about the best way to go forward. um, Is is right now? uh, And I should say a little bit about my history, and I go into that in the book as well. You are looking at the longest-serving independent in the history of the United States Congress. And again, what the book uh, discusses, and and should give everybody here uh, reasons for optimism, especially if you're thinking of getting into politics, is my first run for office in Vermont, I got 2% of the vote, running on a third party. Then, a year later, I ran again and I got 1%. (laughs) Too dumb to quit. I ran again and I got 4%, then I got 6%. And then, finally, I won mayor of Burlington, Vermont, by 10 votes after a recount. <laughs> Last time around, I won with 71% of the votes, so we made some progress over the years. <laughs> but, you know, how we focus, you know, when I came into the United States Congress, the House in uh, 91, I helped form the Progressive Caucus, which Keith Ellison is now the co-chair of, and it's one of the largest caucuses. Um, And we are trying to find enough progressives in the Senate to do the same. That's a little bit hard. But, you know, we are experimenting with ways that we can bring progressives together. And some good progressives, including Pramila, were just elected. It's going to strengthen our hands. But right now, what my task is, and what I'm going to give a a real shot to, is to try to bring basic fundamental reforms to the Democratic Party. That's kind of where I am at this moment.
2: As individuals in society and citizens, how can our voice be heard by those in the government effectively?
1: The last thing that most politicians want is to have to deal with an educated, informed constituency. The last thing. In other words, what you don't know is that major pieces of legislation Involving billions or tens or hundreds of billions of dollars are passed. Nobody writes about it. Defense bills passed, $600 billion. Who cares? If we become involved, if we stand together, if we hold meetings like this and invite local officials to tell us why they're doing what they're doing or what we want, if we hold people accountable, and as I mentioned earlier, right here in Seattle, you have so much to be proud of. You are one of the most progressive cities in the United States, and what you have done has been heard all over this country. Your fight to raise the minimum wage gave the whole fight for 15 boost the major, major push that it needed to succeed all over this country. So, you know, this is the wrong city to lecture because you're already doing this stuff. But you can, we talked about the media, you can think about it. How can you demand that media talk about the real issues, give all sides of the story. Why is it that in America today ninety percent or so of talk radio is extreme right wing in a nation which is politically divided? What can you do about it? You could turn on the damn radio and tell people who own the station here you want other points of view. I don't know what goes on here in Seattle. But that's what we can do as a nation. When You know, I I mentioned this a million times. If a million young people were to march on Washington, D.C. and tell the Congress that they wanted tuition-free public colleges and universities and they wanted the student debt to be substantially lowered, it would happen because politicians look around and they say, oh, my God, i got all these people. They're involved. They're thinking they know how I'm going to vote. I better vote the right way. All right? It is not complicated. The leaders will follow when the people lead, and uh, your job is to be leaders. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, we're going to wrap this up with one more question. How do we protect and expand our voting rights over the next four years?
1: Well, I touched on that, and that is a very important There are some, and again, I don't want to characterize all Republicans in this light because it would not be true. But there are some who now see an opportunity to, in a sense, become the permanent majority party. And they will succeed, they feel, if they can allow billionaires very cleanly and effectively to buy elections, and that deals with campaign finance reform, which is why it is absolutely imperative that at every level, local, state level, New York City, for example, has public funding of elections. You want to run for mayor in New York, you get small amounts of contributions, you can get some public funding. Other states have some good ideas. Think about that as an antidote to Citizens United. Uh, Second of all is the issue of voter suppression. And on this one, there cannot be any compromise. We have all got to work together in any and every way that we can. I don't have the time to list all of the things that we can do, but our job is to increase voter turnout, to make it easier for people to vote, and to oppose any governor who wants to put impediments in the way of people participating in the political process. This is a major, major issue, and it is one of the highest priorities that I have, and I hope that you will share with me in understanding how important it is. We are fighting, look, we win elections, we lose elections. Majority is supposed to rule, but what some of these guys want to do is to make sure that people can't vote and billionaires buy elections. That is not democracy, that is oligarchy at work, and we have got to oppose that. Let me just conclude by, A, thank you. It's a wonderful turnout, and I... And I love this city, and thank you so much for all that you do. And my message, my message today is, is that you know, you know, you gotta think about these things with your friends. You can come up with as good an idea as I can or anybody else can as to what we can do. But do not limit yourself to thinking that politics is just about voting every two years. Somebody just told me the other day in terms of Standing Rock that um, he withdrew his money from a bank which had investments uh, in that pipeline. All All over this country, all over this country college students are demanding that their endowment funds uh, made your University, disinvest from fossil fuel industry. I mean, uh, whether it is the media, whether it is climate change, there are ways that we can be very, very effective. At the end of the day, when millions of people stand up and fight back effectively, they will not be denied, not by Mr. Trump, not by anybody else. That is our job. Let's go forward. Thank you very
0: much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Senator Bernie Sanders spoke at the University Temple United Methodist Church on November 30th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.